Welcome to Global Futures with me, Joel Sandu. Brazil is South America's biggest and most populous country, and according to most experts, should be a key force on the global scene. Instead, recent years have seen Brazil laid low by a massive political crisis, systematic corruption, a tanking economy, and most recently, the spread of a frightening disease. Brazil could be spiraling into the worst economic recession in decades. The country's image as a rising economic power is under threat. So just how badly hit is Brazil, the country of the future? My guest today is the longtime Brazil observer and expert, Matias Spector, who serves as an associate professor in the Center for International Relations at Fundação Getúlio Vargas in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He was a visiting fellow with the London School of Economics in 2009, the Council on Foreign Relations in 2010, and the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in 2012. In 2013, Matias was Rio Branco Chair in International Relations at King's College London. Matias, welcome to our podcast and thank you for hosting us in the Fundación Getúlio Vargas. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into it. You've been working in Brazilian politics, both domestic uh, and foreign, for a number of years now. Just give us a sense of Brazil's current political climate. So Brazil is in a bit of a mess. We've had, in the last three years, um, the biggest economic recession in a generation. We had the impeachment of an elected president. Uh, the vice president who took office is under investigation for five different crimes pertaining to corrupt activity. Um, about a third of the Senate and a third of the lower chamber are involved in some kind of corruption scandal. Um, unemployment is at 14% as of now. Um, so Brazil is in a very bad patch. Interestingly, 2018 is the year we celebrate 30 years of democracy under a new constitution. So it's a wonderful opportunity in a way, although it's been disastrous for the Brazilian people, this crisis. Um, the wonderful thing about it is that it gives us an opportunity to look back and try to learn what on earth happened to make us come to where we are now. Let me pick you up on that. That's very interesting. You've, uh, for years, um, different Brazilian administrations have had to govern through coalition formed with a number of other political parties. Now, some would argue that Brazil's political system is built in such a way that it makes it very difficult for a single party to govern alone. And somehow what was intended to protect and preserve democracy and the rule of law through coalition building also lends itself to the forces of corruption, something you just mentioned. I want to pick, uh, pick up on that. Can you tell us a little bit more? You're absolutely right. Brazil has a peculiar form of democracy, which is multi-party. So the Brazilian president, irrespective of who they are, they are in a minority in Congress. In, our, in, in, in order to govern, they need to put together a coalition. Brazil has a very fragmented parliament. We have over 25 parties with parliament representation. But here's the detail that makes Brazil a very peculiar case. Brazilian presidents get elected in majoritarian elections. So Brazilian presidents like to produce public goods for the majority of the voters. They need 50% plus one. But members of the lower chamber, they are elected on a proportional system. They do not respond to the majority of voters. They're not elected in, in a majority election. They are elected in a 
in a proportional election with very little accountability because they can change parties, uh, because they're elected as part of a coalition. This means that even candidates for the lower chamber who get as little as 33,000 votes might get elected to Congress because they get votes as part of a wider coalition. So what every single candidate for Congress wants is to be in a coalition next to someone famous, someone who's appeared on Big Brother Brazil, or a big church priest, or a TV presenter, or a radio announcer. So this creates a system in which presidents try to produce public goods to the majority of the voters, but members of the lower chamber try to produce particularistic goods to very small slices of the electorate, and in particular, because there's so little accountability to voters, to interest groups. We now know, thanks to the anti-corruption probe we've been having uh, since 2014, we now know that the lower chamber does not worry about voters. It worries about interest groups. It works on behalf of interest groups. And this has opened room for a lot of corruption. Sounds like a lot of horse trading goes on in, in politics. And do you see the current crisis as an opportunity for change, for things to, to turn better in Brazil? And, and uh, let's say, do you envision any form of uh, constitutional reform on the horizon? I don't see a constitutional reform coming. What I see is a political class that has united against the anti-corruption probe, that is resisting and will resist, we don't see a sign that the anti-corruption probe is going to evolve. Uh, I think what we're going to see is the opposite. I think we're going to see a backlash. Now, does that... How's, how's that? Because what Lava Jato unveiled is endemic corruption involving all political parties at all levels, presidential level governors. The three last governors of Rio are in prison. But not only the executive, also chambers of deputies uh, across Brazil. This is a federation. So we have a national Congress, but we also have state level Congress. Again, corruption rampant there. And crucially, in the judiciary system, we thought the control institutions had made very significant improvements in the last 30 years, and to some degree they have. But we now know the levels of collusion with the executive throughout the judiciary system. So what we've seen is a political class coming together on survival mode to fight back. The current president has 3% approval rates, but he managed to purchase the support of the lower chamber through pork barrel and other means. Um, in a way, it's politicians against society that we see, but that doesn't mean I'm, I'm negative about the future. We'll, we'll come back to the uh, elections uh, in, in the next question, but it, it's fascinating. And just for the listeners that uh, are not familiar with Lava Jato, that's the Portuguese word for car wash, which is the uh, current operation for the anti-corruption uh, investigations that are taking place here in Brazil. Now, you mentioned elections. Uh, the people of Brazil will take to the ballot boxes in October uh, this year to decide their future. 
At the same time, Brazil has often been synonymous with one of the worst levels of inequality in the world, the gap between rich and poor. And previous governments under the Workers' Party uh, came in saying that they want to be the voice for the poor. And the fact of the matter is people who voted for the Worker Party, the Workers' Party into power became really unhappy, which led to protests in Sao Paulo and other parts of the country. One could argue that the conditions haven't improved all that much under the go current government uh, led by President uh, Michel Temer. And now it seems Brazil, as you mentioned, is facing one of the worst recessions in decades. The GDP growth rate um, sank to 0.1% in 2017. And as you mentioned earlier, unemployment rate has hit a record high of 14% in March the same year. Now the picture is very bleak. Talk to us a little bit more about the economic situation. Sure, so if you look at Brazil in the last, say, 15 years, we've had a phenomenal time in the early 2000s when commodity prices went skyrocketing and when international interest rates were low. And that's what allowed Lula and the Workers' Party to produce a lot of goods. Brazil did improve. The minimum salary went up above the rate of inflation. Uh, public spending was all the rage and it looked as Brazil was on the way to moving up the ladder to become a very successful story of a transitioning democracy becoming something like Portugal or Spain. So to say the country of the future is now reaching that future that was promised. That was the feeling we had at the time. You know, the Economist magazine had Christ the Redeemer Brazil. taking off as a, as a rocket. Exactly, the Brazil takes off from cover, yeah. What happens since is that things turn around starting in 2008 and 2009 with the global financial crisis, commodity prices went down, and then all of a sudden we realized that the investments that had been made were just irresponsible. Brazil had been overspending, and it has been overspending, and it has been writing the mechanisms for overspending into law. So if you now want to cap public spending, you need to change the law. But you need to change the law with a lower chamber that has very little incentive to respond to the needs of the electorate and every incentive to respond to those interest groups that have benefited from fiscal irresponsibility. So it's been a very harsh awakening economically for the Brazilian people. What we can say about the current administration, though, although it's awful in many respects, and as I said, the current president is facing five corruption charges, what he has managed to do is pass some very important microeconomic reforms. And within a year, we went from negative growth of 3.5% to 0%. And that, although zero looks like nil, is remarkable one year after having contracted GDP over 3%. That says quite a lot. Let's stick with uh, trade and, and commodities. It's a, it's a nice transition over to, to the next question, which I want to discuss with you is, of course, China. And China is Brazil's top trading partner. Trade with China accounted for approximately a third of all Brazilian exports in 2017, namely commodities, as you mentioned. Things such as soybean, iron ore, raw coffee, so on and so forth. 
An economic slowdown in China would mean a weakened demand for Brazilian commodities, and you are still, by and large, a very much economy based on commodities. Now, when you look at the government expenditures, as you were mentioning, expenditures are outpacing government revenue, and this is causing massive problems for the government. Do you think, first of all, that the Brazilian government is overly dependent on the Chinese economy? And my second question to follow up on that would be, is the government in Brasilia doing enough to address this issue? Excellent questions. So, yes, I believe Brazil is overly dependent uh, on China. And that is the product of the fact that Brazil is a low savings economy that is highly dependent on foreign money to finance its own deficits. And government is geared towards overspending. We've written it in the constitution that the interest groups that have special access to the Brazilian government will benefit far more than your average Brazilian. So you end up having a situation that is truly bizarre. According to official numbers, half the Brazilian people have no sanitation at home. That's a hundred million people. And yet, members of our judiciary receive a stipend to pay for rent in apartments, even when they own property in the cities where they serve. They get two-month holidays, and they get a plethora of benefits, like you know, paid graduate work abroad, so on and so forth. Let me give you another example. In Brazil, it's very common for middle-class people to have maids who help them at home. And drivers, and so on. And drivers. Just a few, a couple of hours spending in Sao Paulo. Etc. I am a professor at the university, I'm very middle class, and I pay less tax on my income than the lady who works in my house as a maid. How is that justified? It is not justified, but in a political system where politicians don't depend for their survival, for their political survival, on the vote of the majority of the people, which in the case of Brazil are poor or very poor, that's what you end up having. You end up having people like me reaping the benefits of a system that is fundamentally skewed against the majority. And just to pick up on that uh, second question, so I guess the sense is you don't think Brasilia, the government, uh, is doing enough to address this issue? The government is certainly not doing enough. And part of the reason is that doing something about this is very difficult. It requires constitutional change. And for that, you need to get Congress on board. The question is, what will get Congress to move out of its current state? Very hard. Yeah, that's a whole bag of worms that deserves a whole different discussion. But let me pick you up also on uh, the United States. One cannot talk about the Brazil-China relationship with, without talking about Brazil's second largest trading partner, which is the US. President Trump's administration does not see Brazil as a priority on its political agenda, essentially because Brazil buys more than it sells to the US. And Brazil needs this bilateral relationship to modernize the country's industry and to keep it more competitive. At the same time, tensions between the US and Mexico since President uh, Trump took office has led to stronger economic ties between Mexico and Brazil, two longtime competitors in trade and investment uh, in Latin America. 
Now, do you think Mr. Trump's protectionist trade policies are creating an opportunity for Brazil to foster regional integration? That's a great question. Let me begin by saying this. The fact that Brazil is not on the radar screen of the Trump administration is a very good thing for Brazil. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to be on that radar screen. The second thing refers to the issue of regional integration. I don't think Brazil has the economic wherewithal or the political diplomatic interest or ability to take the current situation as an opportunity to build up regional integration in any meaningful way. Of course, Mexico and Brazil are beginning to trade a little bit more, but starting from a very, very low base. Politically, the two foreign policies distrust each other, compete against each other, do not see the world in the same way. Perhaps let me pick you up on that. Why is there mistrust or distrust, if you will, between Mexico and Brazil? Part of the story is the fact that Brazilians believe Mexico ends up skewing Latin America in favor of the United States ever since Mexico joined NAFTA. Part of the story is that Mexico believes Brazil oftentimes plays a responsible stakeholder with liberal international norms from human rights to climate change to nuclear politics. What we can say, though, is that there is now an opportunity for Brazil to build up regional integration in South America a bit more, merely because after a decade of the 2000s, under the banner of the left in Brazil and in Argentina, we now have governments of the center and center-right in both places wanting to open up trade a little bit more. But here's the catch. Both Brazil and Argentina are dominated by protectionist interest groups. So how far a president can go in opening up trade is rather limited. Let's stay in the region for a moment. Uh, there will be presidential elections, general elections, in a number of countries in Latin America in the year 2018. In Brazil, in Colombia, in Mexico, Venezuela, and Paraguay. Let's stick with the topic of regional integration. What do you think these elections will mean for Latin America to come closer together when there's a year of sweeping general elections across the continent? So, if you look at what's going on in Latin America as a whole, it's a story that is analogous to what's going on in Brazil. Latin America is recovering from the end of the commodity boom. As we speak now in January 2018, the expectation around the globe is that the world economy is going to show a very strong growth in the year ahead. So there might be a reversal there. There might be a heating up of the Chinese economy, which will again translate into a positive cycle in Latin America. Irrespective of what happens there, Latin America is learning now that it made very big mistakes back in the 2000s when the cows were a bit chubbier. So whatever Latin America does next, we'll have to take into account the logic of free trade. That's a logic that most Latin American governments have a very hard time explaining to their electorates. Incentives for protectionism are rampant in the Latin American states on the Atlantic side of the story. And there's always a tension with countries that are far more open on the Pacific side. So you have the Colombias, the Perus, the Chiles, and Mexico indeed. You know, these are countries 
which have adopted strategies to integrate into global trade that are far more ambitious, far more daring than it is the case for the more protectionist countries on the Atlantic coast. That tension, I don't think, is going to be resolved. That's one thing. The second thing is, China knows how to play its hand in Latin America. And Latin American countries, as in the past, they competed over who would get US investment, are now competing against each other as to who will get Chinese investment. And as we've seen with the United States years before, the ability of Latin Americans to get together, to actually negotiate as a group, is minimal. That's right. Thank you so much. And one has to obviously mention BRICS, which is Brazil is part of the BRICS countries, which includes Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Um, and they are seen to represent, and I quote, new, a new multipolar system in international relations. Is that how you see it? To a large degree, yes, in the sense that if you want to deal with issues like financial stability or climate change or global disease, you have to have large developing countries sitting at the table. It's not a matter of choice whether you come up with a new architecture unless you have these large massive countries from the global south at the table, you cannot resolve collective action problems in the 21st century. That's a given. But getting there is so difficult because the fact is that global politics remains remarkably hierarchical. And it's still the case that only a bunch of countries get to shape the norms and the institutions and that resolve these problems. And there's a question of ambition as well that you mentioned earlier. And of course there is a question of ambition which has two sides to it. One is, you know, do these countries have the sort of national vision, the project thing? You know, think of General de Gaulle in France after the war. This is a declining country and yet here's, you know, this notion that if you have a national project, that project is enough to put you up there with the big, with the big players. That's one side of the story. But the other side of the story is to do with, do these countries have the people with the skills to engage into global ordering, if you want? And one of the things that affects Brazil enormously is the fact that this is a civilization into itself. The Brazilian elites don't speak English. They're not normally socialized in the academic institutions where the elites of Germany or Turkey or India get socialized by the mere fact that education happens in English to a degree that is simply not the case with Brazil. Now that we're veering into the realm of foreign policy, I'm going to talk a little bit about multilateralism with you. And Brazil is known to have had aspirations for a permanent seat in the United Nations Security Council. The government showed a willingness to take on a greater responsibility in issues of international peace and security because of its economic capacity. We know Brazil was the ninth largest economy in 2017. Uh, it has a large population, and as you also mentioned earlier, a massive geographical size. Brazil proposed the responsibility while protecting, in 2011, a major contribution to the debate on humanitarian intervention. And it was also the forerunner in the debate uh, on internet governance as a human rights issue. Given all this, how badly do you think the current political crisis has hit Brazil's aspirations to play a bigger role on the global stage? 
I think the impact has been enormous and disastrous. I think there's no appetite in Brasilia for any sort of ambitious activist foreign policy. I also think that the last time we had that under the Workers' Party with Lula, um, many mistakes were made, um, generating a reaction which is natural, which is sort of risk-averse. Brazil is not taking any risks internationally now, and I don't see a change in the very near future. Of course, all, all of this will change quickly once the economy recovers. The economic state of a, of a country kind of shapes expectations about the future and determines how far your ambitions can go to a large degree. Um, I just don't see that happening in the very near future. I have to ask, you mentioned the Economist cover uh, where Brazil takes off. I remember that was the uh, November 2009 Economist cover. It's uh, seared into my mind because I thought it was fantastic. If the economy improves, how quickly do you think we can see a second cover of such sort where you know Brazilians are then again uh, enthusiastic and looking forward to a brighter future? Uh, would that be something that you would see in five, ten years after the economy recovers, or are they going to be more cautious, taking into account lessons learned from 2009? I don't think we're going to be cautious. I think the time the economy recovers, we are going to see um, expectations expand very dramatically. And, you know, you have to bear in mind, Brazil is the tenth economy in the world. It's got 200 million people, very alive, politically, socially. It's a very creative society. It's endowed with remarkable natural resources. So when the economy picks up, the national mood picks up almost immediately. And then the issue is, can we historians and political scientists remind our fellow citizens of mistakes past? We're coming to uh, the end of our time. Matthias, but uh, there is one final question I want to put to you. There's been a lot of talk uh, about an emerging new global order, which in a nutshell, and I'm aware that I'm oversimplifying this, suggests the decline of the West and the rise of the rest, if you will, led by any country such as China, for one. Now, if we were to fast forward a little bit more than 10 years from now, say to the year 2030, where do you see Brazil in this new global order and what role would Brazil be playing in this new constellation? That's a great question. So, yes, to be sure, the decline of the West and the rise of the rest. But unlike previous historical moments of rise and decline, this time around the nature of global order has changed very dramatically. Now, international norms and institutions and transnational forces shape domestic politics in ways that they didn't before. And that applies to the United States and Norway as much as it does to Indonesia and Brazil. So fast forward into 2030, I think Brazil will remain one of the big countries where the future of global order gets determined, whether people begin to lead better lives, or not, whether disease is going to be a common thread of that period or not. 
this is still going to be a country which will have enormous weight in determining whether the rest of Latin America rises or falls. It'll be a country where financial stability or financial instability will affect markets elsewhere in the North Atlantic and in Asia. So I think there's no way even a timid Brazil will have anything but a position in the world that it is going to be relevant. And precisely because of that, uh, it needs to get fixed. We have to leave it there, Matias. I wish you and I wish Brazil all the best in the future. Thank you very much for joining us, Matias. Thank you. Thank you so much. This edition of Global Futures was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by my colleague, Sonia Sugrobova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest was Matthias Spector. The Global Governance Futures Program brings together exceptional young professionals to look ahead 10 years and think of ways to better address global challenges. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.